Listeners, welcome back to the Business of Wellness. I am your host, Jacqueline London, and I think we are long overdue for a little bit of a breakdown of all things happening in food and nutrition. I have a number of topics that I'm going to get into today, some of the kind of highlighted, most talked about, of the moment topics in the realm of food and nutrition, what they mean in general, what are some of the implications of these things, and what do they mean for you as someone who is a listener of this podcast, as someone who is interested in the wellness industry at large and may work in the wellness industry, and what are some of the consumer takeaways? So if you are listening and you're thinking, okay, I don't work in this industry, but I do want to know what the deal is with sugar alcohols, yes, please grab a seat, go for a walk, get outside, stay a while because we're going to get into all of it. As always, I'm going to leave this little reminder here at the top that is if you are enjoying this podcast, if you like what you hear today, please feel free to go ahead and leave a five-star rating and a kind review. I'd love to hear from you. I'm reading all of these and I cannot tell you how much I appreciate hearing from each and every one of you. So keep um, keep the influx rolling. Um, and of course, you can always find me on social at Jacqueline London RD and on TikTok at Jacqueline London. So without further ado, here's what we are getting into today, just to give you a little bit of a background. So first topic that we're going to cover is Weight Watchers acquisition of Sequence, the telemedicine company focusing on obesity medicine. We're going to talk through the pros, the cons, the media coverage, my favorite take, and my overall point of view and perspective as Weight Watchers former head of nutrition and wellness, because I have some thoughts. And they may surprise you, actually. Um, then we're going to get into the topic of nature medicine, their recent study findings that link erythritol to cardiovascular disease and the general media chaos that resulted after that. And then we will go through what you need to know about erythritol, is it safe to use, and revisiting the topic, my favorite, this is one of my favorite topics, revisiting the topic of monosodium glutamate, MSG, as a food additive and flavor enhancer. Do Americans have good, as in evidence-based reasons to basically avoid this ingredient at all costs? And is the bias against MSG racially motivated? Is MSG a savior to all things public health, all, all of the things that ail public health? Uh, we will discuss. We will unpack. Um, I can't wait to share all of this with you and more, so stay tuned. We're going to get into it in just a sec. Weight Watchers acquisition of sequence. All right. So here is what I want to cover about this news item. So the first thing to know is that Weight Watchers acquired sequence, which is a telehealth company focusing on medical weight loss and prescription of GLP-1s for people who qualify. And some of the key features of this acquisition include insurance coordination. So that means that physicians and I, I would imagine nurse practitioners at sequence manage the entire process of what it means to, um, to go through prior authorization for these medications. They manage your prescriptions. You do clinician check-ins as the patient after both the first appointment and you pay $99 a month for a subscription to this service. There is also mention on Sequence's website about personalization of your personal dietary needs and preferences by working with a dietitian. And they also list access to a fitness coach. So from what it looks like and from what I've read so far, it really looks like through this acquisition, 
Weight Watchers will be the behavioral health food nutrition partner to an existing telehealth service. So what does that mean? Basically, you know, and granted, they are the the acquirer. So they are, they bought this company. So this company will go under the umbrella that is Weight Watchers. But what what does this mean in the broader sense? I I think, and this is my opinion, and it's been, you know, I, I'm going to share some sources with you of what I consumed to prepare for this episode. But in addition to that, just as kind of a hot take from the outside, if you're a patient of Sequence, you will likely, most likely, get access to the, the Weight Watchers program and uh, membership tiers. Although it seems from everything that I've read so far, it seems that this has yet to be worked out. So actually really interesting. There's a lot of people, a lot of talk online about what this really means. And actually no one knows what it means, including the, the people involved at, at the... <laughs> at the very basic, very direct level. Um, How far it'll go if you're a member of, a current member of Weight Watchers and want to access this program, the sequence program, like how, how can it go the other way? That's also still pretty unclear right now. And that's likely because both companies really are deeply unclear about how this exactly will work and how they will merge from a programmatic standpoint at the time of this recording. So just the lay of the land from what I can glean as more, you know, in my journalist role here, that's, that's what I'm seeing. So no, to answer the kind of larger question that's at play here, Weight Watchers can't just automatically prescribe medications that are magically somehow accepted by insurance. It's not like you can be, uh, you know, the great example that comes to mind is like, it's not like Kyle Richards can just like join Weight Watchers in order to get her Ozempic now covered by insurance. You know what I mean? So Ozempic specifically isn't covered by insurance for weight loss alone. You'd have to meet a set of qualifying criteria that includes a comorbidity like insulin resistance, or your choice is to, if you really want Ozempic, then you're going to have to pay out of pocket regardless of your membership to the Weight Watchers program. So if you don't qualify, it's not like you're going to automatically qualify by being a Weight Watchers member. member. And I'm saying that here because while I don't know that specifically as if I were working for this company, I do know that from the standpoint of what can possibly be allowed through insurance coverage um, as a practitioner. It's fascinating how basically every headline is using the search term Ozempic to fight for their spot in Google's news algorithm, however. I mean, that is truly maybe the most fascinating component of all of this is like every headline is linking Weight Watchers and Ozempic together. And you can see when you look at this from a media standpoint that this is clearly a search play. I mean, this is just an effort to get to the top of Google's algorithm. Um, People who are having strong negative reactions to this are totally expected. I mean, all the time, always. But I, I do have a bit of a different take here. I think it's a smart move for Weight Watchers specifically. And The news coverage on this topic itself is honestly what creates a little bit more of the toxicity of that kind of toxic environment. Like it or not, Weight Watchers is a consumer brand. They're a household name and a brand that many people have had at some point over the course of their lifespan and interaction with, especially millennials like myself who watched their parents use it when they were growing up. So while the move makes sense for their business model and their demographic, like who are the members of Weight Watchers, right? This makes sense for them. What I don't love is the fallout from it and what the message is that's given to other consumer brands or similar brands in a similar category, including, and if this is still around, if this still exists, their actual brand partners. Um, So 
I'll tell you more about that when we get to the cons. I want to start with some of the positives. Let's start with the pros. First, it puts a stake in their membership demographic who actually needs or stands to benefit from the GLP-1 medications the most. Um, And that's really important, right? Because a comorbidity, obviously, of obesity can be type 2 diabetes. And and this kind of brings me to another point that I I want to discuss, which is that if you haven't had the chance to listen to the episode with Lauren Harris-Pinkus, talking about the new class of this new class of medications, the GLP-1s, talking about what they do, how they're used and what they're used for, please go back and listen to that episode. It really is one of my favorites of all time. Lauren is so brilliant and speaks about this so well. And I think that, you know, of course, you are always going to get something different when you have different uh, practitioners, different consumers, different so-called experts weighing in on this topic. But when it comes to people you really want to listen to on this, I would say dietitians and specifically Lauren, and you'll hear why in that episode. I'll just tease it here. Um, it is the perfect person, are the perfect uh, practitioners to speak on the topic. Um, and that's because we're really looking at multiple sides of this, who benefits, who does not benefit and what it means. And what this, what this entire acquisition is predicated upon is the idea that obesity itself is a disease. Now, does that mean that weight gain is a disease? Absolutely not. (laughs) It also doesn't mean that people who have overweight or obesity are universally qualifying for for this medication. It does not mean that. And that's actually going to come up a little bit when we get into the cons of, of what I think some of the negatives are. But for, the, for now, as we cover what the benefits, the potential benefits might be, I think we need to understand that it can be, that obesity can exist as two things, right? It can be something that is on its own something determined by genetics that manifests as obesity. And it can also be something that is caused by your environment, by multiple other factors that play a role in in how food affects our health over the course of our lifespan. There's many other reasons for it. So it can be one or the other, or in many cases, it might be both. But for those in, in the category of disease and those in the category of both, this might be a really potential game changer for um, for improving someone's overall health and for public health on the whole. Okay. So that's at the individual level. Yes, these can be really effective uh, medications for the treatment of obesity, but how they're used, when they're used, and who they are used for is a critical component of that discussion. And that is something that has yet to be worked out both in the research and also in practice. So how Weight Watchers thinks they're going to work that out is a big question mark. All right. The other benefit for from a business standpoint for Weight Watchers and for Sequence, global markets tend to care about new signups for the Weight Watchers program. So the Sequence acquisition gave a gift just by signing a contract of 24,000 potential new members. So being able to list that, being able to put that on um, their uh, on their earnings call, like being able to say that to their shareholders is a big deal for them. Um, and I, I have got to say that, you know, this is true of public companies across the board. So I don't think I'm saying anything revelatory, but this is, that's obviously something that is a little bit like dangling the shiny carrot um, for shareholders. And I, and there's there's got to be, you know, I mean, if you've just seen the stock price 
of late, you can understand why probably there was a push to do that internally. Um, that that would seem like, okay, we're doing something, you know, there's huge potential for this market. There's a lot to do in the future with the GLP-1 market. How are we going to cash in on that? I can easily see that kind of conversation going down at the executive level. Um, and discussions like that came up frequently. So that's all I'll really say on that front, particularly because more than anything else, ignorance. I mean, I only know from my experience, and that was now in 2021 is the last time that I was there. So it, it's really hard to say based on the who the actual players are. But I can say that, you know, that this is a shiny toy from a global market standpoint. More content and creative resources for sequence, employees and practitioners can really be beneficial. That's another huge pro of this. I think, you know, as someone who worked in content and on the global brand team, I really had like a, a, an absolute front seat to all of the content and creative that goes on for this global brand, especially from the people who work here in New York City, who are um, working on all of the food and the recipe content. There's so much work that goes into that. And these recipes are from the best of the best. And I can say that with confidence because I know her and she's amazing. <laughs> um, but I but I really, I feel like that is not being talked about enough, right? It's like, that's the real benefit from sequences standpoint is that as a dietitian, as any health practitioner will tell you, you only get so much time with any individual patient. So when you have something that you can provide them with as a follow-up, as a takeaway, as something to review when you leave that session, that's a huge asset. And I think that's where Weight Watchers really has stuff to deliver. Like they can really benefit sequence patients by giving them some of those follow-up items, action items, especially the recipe content. That's huge. The other thing that I think we, we cannot uh, understate, we cannot undervalue here, is the renewed relevance of the Weight Watchers program. Um, a lot of people know this as Weight Watchers, then WW, now it's Weight Watchers again. God, it's so much easier to say Weight Watchers. I wish that when I had worked there, I had been able to say that, but I could not. Okay. Renewed relevance, that's a huge deal. The, these guys are dinosaurs. It's a behemoth of a company. It's a global company. And ultimately, getting in the news is just good for them, whether it's good news or bad news. So this is a reason to be in the news. And honestly, I mean, for them, I think I think especially for their new-ish CEO, that feels like a win just to be in the Wall Street Journal whatsoever. I think this is a major member retention play on behalf of Weight Watchers. So GLP-1s, yes, are their game changers, but they are also lifelong medications. We know that. I mean, Lauren and I covered that in great detail. They are lifelong medications. You're really committing to the idea that if you go on a GLP-1, you may be you may require that medication for the rest of your life. And you also really need other lifestyle interventions to make weight loss actually work for you, as in make weight loss weight maintenance over time. And Weight Watchers cannot afford to lose members, any members that they get. So if you have to be on a GLP-1 and you are prescribed a GLP-1 from a physician and you meet all the criteria and you, this medication is really meant for you, why shouldn't Weight Watchers get in on that prize? Because you are therefore in their network 
for presumably life. It's a much longer life cycle if you need support as part of being on a GLP-1 than it is to say that you are just a weight loss program on your own, right? Because what do people do when they lose the weight? They quit. So I think that this is, this is really, that's where the true genius, like back to the idea that this is a brilliant business move. This is why it's a brilliant business move is because you have people paying a monthly membership fee now under your umbrella for both medication and for the behavior slash lifestyle related treatment plan that makes this so brilliant. On the darker side, this, this is bringing (laughs) you, you are in, you are tied to both the medication and to this program for a longer period of time. And whether or not that's great, we can get into when we go through the cons. So let's get into the cons, shall we? Um, I think this adds a little bit of an extra layer of consumer confusion about weight loss versus wellness and what these two terms mean or don't mean. First of all, I mean, we could spend an entire episode just parsing those words. And if you guys are interested in that, I am certainly happy to discuss it and to go into granular detail on it because I wrote about this a lot in Dressing on the Side. I talk about it a lot, which is that wellness became the rebrand of weight loss and it looks like we're unbranding now, which is completely understandable. And honestly, this is actually something I like. I like that the company is leaning into their their history as a clinically validated weight loss tool. They are, they, they do have peer reviewed research that demonstrates their efficacy as a weight loss program. Now, the problem with any study that validates efficacy of a weight loss program is that you're ultimately limited by duration. (laughs) So if you, you put people on this for a certain period of time, how long can they possibly adhere to some of the dietary parameters, right? Because anyone can do anything for a temporary period of time. But how well does it fit with your lifestyle? How well does it fit with you as your lifestyle evolves? These are all question marks of any commercial weight loss program or any restrictive diet whatsoever, keto, fasting, any of that, right? Um, so I think this adds both a layer of confusion, but it I think, I think really what is more interesting is that the added layer of confusion does not appear to be with members. It appears to be with like the peanut gallery, people like me who are speaking about it. So perhaps it's just harder for individuals outside of the company to really say, is it weight loss? Is it wellness? But let's be honest, no one was ever going to Weight Watchers for quote unquote wellness. Like it's not goop and everyone knows that. So I think I think it's just interesting how this shift has may contribute to some of that confusion, but the, it's really contributing to confusion from the outside going in. It's not necessarily confusing to those who are actually members or really truly interested in becoming members. So I think it's kind of safe to say that it's a con. If it appears to be not for you and actually you could benefit from it, that's where it would be a con. We'll talk about that more in a second. I think by rebrand, by going the, the unbranding process of going back to Weight Watchers, of calling themselves a weight loss program and not being afraid to lean into that is their point of difference. And I do think that that is an overall positive. But as far as prevention goes, I think that what is really noticeably missing from the business world right now, from the from global markets at large, is tangible, actionable solutions that speak to people who have experienced weight gain that is not necessarily the medical 
capital O obesity. But there are also a lot of people out there and it's really why I think there's so much confusion and so much discussion around like, well, what do we, what do we do about the rising obesity rates, right? Like why has this, why is this increased over the years rather than decreased? Well, it's increased because of a lot of other factors. And those other factors are really not getting addressed by Weight Watchers making this move. I think we're, we're, we're really at a, kind of watershed moment where it's like, what are those things going to be? What are those things going to look like? And honestly, and this I was talking about with Vanessa on last week's episode is like when dietitians are the product and we don't really have a governing body, you know, to really represent us or lobby for us and, or give us licensure for that matter, then we're really just continuing to paddle uphill. So when I went to Weight Watchers in 2019, I was really interested in in essentially and leading a team to to kind of build out this how do we empower the the people who know the most about nutrition science in research and in practice and use these people as the product like how do we get dietitians into the brand as the product and that really felt like instantly flat <laughs> from like a day one that I was there. Um, I think that's something to think about. It's like, what does the future of this look like? Who do we empower? And for anyone who out there who is listening and is a capital allocator, how are you putting a stake in dietitians as the business model? Because we we can talk all we want till we're blue in the face about what what our healthcare system can do. But right now we just don't have enough private solutions that actually help people do this and to help mitigate weight gain that can come as a result of a number of different factors and that people really want real solutions for, but don't know where to look. So I think it's worth saying that by, by, this acquisition, we know that Weight Watchers has taken a stake in the insurance and provider model of healthcare. It is a treatment now, and it's really like saying we are a treatment. We are not a preventative health business. We're not in the business of prevention. That's really saying we believe in these medications full stop, and we're going to go all in with your provider. And listen, this company has always been trying to really embed themselves with physicians. And there is an entire arm of the business that's really dedicated to going B2B, to going to um, providers. But but as a consumer brand, to, to put such a stake in this market is a little bit fascinating just because it it sends us it sends that signal right it's that signal that these are safe the thing is that these are probably safe for the people who need it most but let's be really honest when we're talking about the people who need it most it may be that that much of a life or death situation it may be so serious like the other health complications that can come for people who have obesity and who have struggled their entire lives these may be like the life-saving solution and in that case it is critical. But remember, we're talking about a consumer brand, right? Like we're talking about people that also sell protein bars. And the last thing that I want to say on this as far as cons go is that the new customer acquisition outside of this depersonalized insurance provider healthcare model is going to be tough. And I don't know that that's a place that they're really investing in. I don't know that that's something they even care to do anymore. I think that's going to be really hard because communicating exactly who you are and what you do, given in light of the media coverage on it, is going to be, is a, it's tricky. It's like a sort of fine line to walk. But I do think ultimately that the smartest thing that they could do is actually what they did is to go to what is their sort of B2B play here that will instantly give them new members. Maybe they are planning to acquire additional telehealth or telemedicine or um, private healthcare companies. So let, let's get to some bottom line items here. 
GLP-1s are a medication that may be necessary for people with type 2 diabetes and obesity. Not everyone, but some people. And obesity as a disease and weight gain due to environmental, lifestyle, other health-related conditions are not necessarily the same. They may coexist, they may become trickier to parse, and therefore ultimately require some GLP-1 or Medicaid medical intervention. But for a lot of people who won't qualify for GLP-1s, personalized weight management interventions still won't be found at Weight Watchers. I can personally um, say that with some degree of confidence. The public-facing image of bringing these two concepts together under the same roof, I think, gives the perception of a global consumer brand partnership with a healthcare system that for many people feel like that's what got them into this mess of like, what the fuck do I eat in the first place? So when all you have is a very rather restrictive for many people point system, an app and like a handout that might not be enough to help you better understand your relationship with food as a member. So new customer acquisition can be tough. To me, this says a lot about the context, about where there are opportunities for capital allocators, for new business ventures, for dietitians who uh, who are founders. I think this this really is an open road for for that part of the market that is untapped to take off. And I would love to see, I would love to hear from those of you who are interested in learning more about that and how it might work. We also need business solutions that scale either dietitians as the product or creative, interactive, engaging nutrition education as the product that's run by dietitians. Not another example of the category leader in consumer weight loss getting in bed with big insurance or rather bringing big insurance into bed. Um, the program itself really can only do so much. It can only deliver so much value. You're capped by their complete inability to personalize anything anything <laughs> that's relative to your actual needs and lifestyle. So how this will actually work is TBD, according to what's been written so far. And that's the time of this recording. I will definitely keep an eye on it. I can't help it. I'm a news consumer. I'm a business news consumer. I'm a wellness news consumer. So you can see how all of this comes together. I just couldn't not touch this topic. Let me know what you guys think. I would love to hear from you about um, what your thoughts are on this acquisition. I'd also love to hear from you about what you think about what I said as it relates to retention play, customer retention, um, and what you think this means for the category or for the overall conversation about GLP-1s and weight management. All right. So let's discuss the latest controversy over erythritol. So a study published in Nature Medicine last week, it came out on, I think, February 27th, it made national media headlines for linking a zero-calorie sugar substitute to increased risk of cardiovascular disease and symptoms. The headlines range from Wall Street Journal, are artificial sweeteners bad for you? New worries about linked to strokes, heart attacks, to CNN, zero-calorie sweetener linked to heart attack and stroke. And today, what is erythritol, sugar substitute linked to heart attacks, comma, stroke? So <laughs> I'm about to have a stroke reading that. I mean, let's talk about what it is, what it means for consumer food products, and what it may mean for you. All right. First, what is erythritol? It is a type of sugar alcohol that's found in three specific ways. And these are each one of them going to be important. So let's cover each. The first is naturally occurring in carbohydrate foods like fruit. Um, melon is a great example of, of, of a type of fruit in which sugar alcohols are present in larger amounts, but to some degree as a dietary carbohydrate, fruit, veggies, whole grains, um, any, 
any type of sugar alcohol that is naturally occurring, maybe found in mixed amounts, you know, kind of across the, the supermarket, right? But it may come from foods in which it is already innately there. And it may come from number two, which is as a food additive used to replace sugar in food products made through a fermentation process. That's important. It is, this is always lauded as innovation in food science, in food production, is to use something that's naturally occurring. That is as a food additive used to replace sugar in food products made through a fermentation process. From what I've gleaned from the FDA generally recognized as safe kind of review, designation, research review, is that this is typically um, done by fermenting corn. So it is essentially taking a carbohydrate food fermenting it and using these sugar alcohols to then sweeten other commercially available food products. The third and most significant for our purposes today component of this, the third way that we find erythritol is that our bodies also produce smaller amounts of erythritol for healthy people, smaller amounts of erythritol as a byproduct of glucose metabolism. So where do you find erythritol most frequently? Where is it most commonly used? It is most common to find erythritol in larger amounts in packaged foods labeled zero sugar, since research on erythritol shows that it does not appear to have a significant impact on blood sugar or insulin secretion. So it may have this oral health benefit as well. So according to the FDA, erythritol is considered generally recognized as safe for use as a flavor enhancer, formulation aid, humectant, non-nutritive sweetener, stabilizer, thickener, sequestrant, texturizer, and it can be used in a variety of foods. It's been used in, been used in the following human foods, bakery fillings, cakes and cookies, chewing gum, dairy drinks, fat-based cream used in modified fat slash calorie cookies, pastries, hard candies, frozen dairy desserts, puddings, reduced and low-calorie beverages soft candies, sugar substitutes, yogurt, and others. <laughs> Gotta love the FDA. This is such a government thing to, it's like this really specific long list of frozen dairy desserts and others. And then they also go on to say, in addition, erythritol is a non-karyogenic carbohydrate sweetener, as in it's not gonna give you cavities. Okay, so I wanna use a little quotation from Food Insight to give us a little bit more context here. Estimated consumption of erythritol is about 16 grams per day in the U.S., with the highest erythritol consumers getting about 32 grams per day. Although symptoms of gastrointestinal distress have been noted with excessive intakes, erythritol is considered to be well-tolerated up to 1 gram per kilogram of body weight per day, which would be up to 68 grams of erythritol per day for someone weighing 150 pounds. Okay. I will also add here that the from the FDA GRAS statement, from the generally recognized as safe kind of research brief, erythritol at 50 grams per day can cause GI side effects like diarrhea. I mean, they note some issues with the study that they're citing when they talk about this in the paper, but I'm going to link that here. You can certainly make up your own mind. And if you are following a low FODMAP diet for the treatment, for the management of IBS, erythritol is considered to be a lower FODMAP polyol, but it is still a polyol. So there's that. Um, okay. So when erythritol or other types of sugar alcohols are added to a packaged food or beverage, the FDA requires that the type of sugar alcohol is specified in the list of ingredients. Okay. This is also according to Food Insight. You're not always going to find sugar alcohols documented on the nutrition facts label, right? 
So sugar alcohols aren't required to be displayed on the label unless a product makes a claim on that label about sugar alcohols or sugar content. So if such claim is made, like zero sugar, for example, then the number of grams of sugar alcohols in a serving of the product must be displayed on the nutrition facts label. If only one type of sugar alcohol, such as erythritol, is used, some products will call it out by name on the nutrition facts label, but this is actually not required. This is really important, and we're going to come back to why after I give you the kind of overview about the study. So what were the findings? The latest study, again, it's in Nature Medicine. It looked at subjects who were age 60 plus who were already at high risk for heart disease and found an association between erythritol intake and risk of major adverse cardiac events, most notably the association of erythritol and the formation of blood clots. So Lots of the headlines that were out there that made mainstream news, Google News algorithm, lots of headlines about this being a huge study and quote unquote alarming to the researchers because of the fact that erythritol is found in so many food products that are currently being marketed as low sugar or lower sugar and therefore as a better option. There, it's often a whole, it's sort of like holistic approach to marketing, right? It's like mul- firing on multiple fronts, sexy packaging and zero sugar on the front. This is the general, this is my general take on where we landed with this study. My big takeaways from all of this. First is something that many of you listening right now know and hold to be true as well, which is that association is not causation. Regardless of the study, regardless of the design, who funded it, the sample size, regardless of any of that, it's simply just not a a clear-cut cause and effect relationship. So when we see associations, especially in the news versus the paper itself, we always have to take everything that comes after that with a grain of salt. Now, obviously, as a clinician, I am looking at associations all the time when it comes to population data about what types of dietary approaches affect whom or may be associated with certain things, health outcomes, right? So for me, it is a question of looking at both associations and cause and effect relationships to ultimately inform an experienced-based clinical judgment. So I think there's a place for all sorts of research, but what so often happens with especially with big news moments like this, is that those two distinctions get really conflated and association versus causation. So I think it's really important for us to call that out as much as possible. The second big takeaway for me in this study, the biochemistry of erythritol and the study design itself are totally misrepresented by the media coverage. I mean, the media went apeshit over this. And I I honestly was like, is this a slow news week? Is that what you're saying? Hard to, I mean, I got an alert while I was coming back from New Zealand on my iPhone. It's like my iPhone knows, like you're a dietitian who speaks about media, science in the media, science in the news. Like, like, (laughs) are you, like you thought I needed to know this at 30,000 feet? Like that's how hysterical we got over it. Um, So first, just to, it's not about me. So let's just back up for a sec. The biochemistry of erythritol. Let's go back. Erythritol production in the body we know exists. We covered that. But it also increases with oxidative stress. What is oxidative stress? Risk for cardiovascular disease. So if you're at risk for cardiovascular disease, and that's accurately reflected in the blood work of the study participants who were all undergoing in in two different phases of the trial, work up an evaluation for CVD risk assessment, and then later for CVD evaluation, for treatment evaluation. So that's who we're talking about. That was the population. Okay, 
Intake of erythritol does not appear to be a safety concern from one study alone. Using this data showing an association between erythritol and CVD, the, research, the researchers conducted a pilot study of, just wait for it, eight healthy volunteers, gave them erythritol to actually consume, and found that erythritol levels in the blood went up, and they stayed up for two days when these folks were given erythritol to actually eat in food sources. This, they found, heightened platelet reactivity and thrombosis potential. So that is interesting, but again, eight people. The bottom line is that this study really shows the need for, number one, more research. But that's about where the kind of concrete takeaways begin and end because erythritol is still generally recognized by recognized as safe by the FDA. The way that this study was communicated to and by mainstream media was totally jarring and misrepresentative of the study itself. And ultimately, consuming some erythritol from naturally occurring and quote unquote zero sugar products appears to be just fine, especially if you have type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance. So Again, what I like about erythritol and what I like about sugar substitutes at large is for the ability for people who have insulin resistance to be able to enjoy products that um, that make it easier to to have more convenience, to feel more liberated, to feel like you actually have lots of options out there for you, whether that be real sugar versions of desserts, of treats that you're consuming in smaller amounts, or maybe you're consuming something that is sweetened with erythritol because you feel like you had lots of different sources of sugar for the day. Whatever it is, I think, I hate this word so much. I hate the word moderation, but I think it, it is really the only word that I can use in this instance. Moderate amounts of erythritol appear to be absolutely fine. Now, I want to talk about this and zoom out on this from a consumer product standpoint. Where will you find erythritol in the greatest amounts in real life? Because something I actually liked about this study is a quote that appears in the discussion section that I want to read for you right now. The World Health Organization, Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations Expert Committee on Food Additives, that is a long name for an organization, okay, they assigned an acceptable daily intake that is quote-unquote not specified. The FDA does not require disclosure of erythritol content in food products, making its levels in food as an additive hard to track. Okay. Think about that for a sec. Also, later on in the paper's discussion, quote, intervention safety studies on artificial sweeteners are conducted over relatively short durations and have been criticized for inadequately capturing long-term exposure and for differing from real-life practice. That is very true. And this really brings me to where we find erythritol products ubiquitously, which is food products, foods that are marketed as zero sugar, as keto specifically, especially in the last few years, and low-carb. These are the low-carb low carb alternatives to sugar-sweetened packaged foods, zero sugar, keto. I also see naturally sweetened, which drives me nuts, but we'll save that topic for another day. How does something become generally recognized as safe? The food companies that are creating or, or manufacturing these ingredients essentially have to ask the FDA for what they want to be able to say on food products. And so in the case of erythritol, we find sugar alcohols in nature and therefore the, the companies that kind of advocated, the manufacturers of erythritol that advocated for this to not have anything specified as an amount, we just consider it 
generally recognized as safe. In food products, it shows up as, quote, zero sugar alternative, zero calorie sweetener, which is actually, and I know that this is so stupid and nitpicky, but just hear me out on this. That's really different from a product that's sweetened with Splenda or aspartame. And they, where, where they're marketing with words that, can, that are limited to what they can say because of what they've been approved to say by the FDA at the outset, right? When they first came up with or were bringing these products to market. And that is sugar-free and diet. But if you're looking at this going, what the hell is the difference? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the big question, right? Is that the argument here and like the company's arguments here is that erythritol is found in nature and therefore we can use it in whatever amount we want, <laughs> right? Because you could just as well eat it in nature. But we don't find the, the kind of like synthetically created or the chemically created or created in the lab the other types of sweeteners that are on the market, your Splenda, your Aspartame, your Equal, all of that, right? We have the acceptable daily amounts based on research that's been done to date, right? I mean, and I think that there's a valid question to be raised there. Even as someone who loves a good sugar substitute, personally, professionally, I love a good sugar substitute. I, I have seen them have um, innumerable innumerable benefits to people who are looking for sugar alternatives in places where it makes logical sense for someone's lifestyle. So like a great example of this is like when people, the most often I'm asked this question is in the context of coffee and tea, right? Is it bad to use Splenda in my coffee? I'm like a three Splenda gal. I mean, honestly, because Ultimately, like if this is going to be my source of Splenda for the day, I'm good. You know, like the, like just all things being equal, no thing in isolation of everything else that you do can can really harm you when your goat, when it is being processed and metabolized in your body through the GI tract, it cannot make or break you, right? And for generally healthy people, obviously there are exceptions to this. There's exceptions to everything. But in the past 15 or 20 years or so, our media and our food culture has become obsessed with wellness while shunning the idea of weight loss diets. I mean, on the whole, we were just talking about Weight Watchers. Simultaneously, because of the safety statements from companies that manufacture non-nutritive sweeteners versus companies that manufacture sugar alcohols, most common are aspartame, Splenda, acesulfame, potassium here in the United States, the increase in food products that ascribe to the lower sugar, paleo, biohacking, keto-friendly, wellness warrior lifestyle appear to be everywhere. I mean, when I walk into Whole Foods, there are things with erythritol left, right, and center. It is the manufacturers of those ingredients who present their case to the FDA and the FDA has to sign off on it. And when you think about the fact just just historically how this plays out, it's worth calling out that both this study and the products that provide erythritol for this reason, we, we just don't know how many people might be affected by the seemingly limitless ability to consume erythritol in lots of different products and in many different forms. So while Diet Coke has been battling its image issue since like the 90s when safety statements about use of high-intensity sweeteners like the that, that are that are referred to as artificial sweeteners when those were first evaluated and written. So there's an acceptable daily limit for aspartame. There's an acceptable daily limit for Splenda, but there isn't one for the quote natural erythritol. 
and by natural, I'm using that sort of tongue in cheek here because I mean, yes, what, what even is natural? It's like an existential question. When I say that, I mean erythritol as a food additive, not one that you're finding in melon. Okay. So the beauty of the generally recognized as safe statement from my perspective as a dietitian is that products that have quote, artificial ingredients can often be less expensive. The ingredients cost less to the manufacturer. So the end user, the customer pays less, but actually having an amount that's at least listed on a website somewhere is from my perspective, much more informative than having no amount listed anywhere at all. That's really why my personal takeaway is this for consumers, read food labels and include non-nutritive sweeteners and or sugar in the amounts that you know you can personally tolerate and that work for you, for your lifestyle, and for your health concerns. Focus mostly on more whole food, real food ingredients, like prioritizing real dessert instead of like a sad keto cookie. And ultimately, remember that there is always going to be some sort of catch, be it scientific or by nature of the FDA's impact on food marketing, when something appears to be free. So like, just, there's just so much that goes into food marketing. So I just think that like the story of erythritol, the publicity and the publication of this study and the publicity that came with it and the outcomes and then the kind of media narrative around what this means for people is it's like just intended to drive more confusion. So I'm certainly not here to do that. But I do think the backstory is really interesting. It just shows you how the kind of advocating for um, – for use of an ingredient in food products and the claims that can be made about that ingredient can change based on the, the really the companies that have created them, then the FDA and their review at the time in which these ingredients were reviewed and approved, and then how those products then get used to create a, a new category in the commercial food supply. So Bottom line on erythritol, certainly safe for now in moderate amounts, just like anything else, just something to think about. Okay, let's wrap things up today by talking about one of my personal favorite hobby horses, which is monosodium glutamate. I have talked about this on a previous episode, but in kind of shorter form and just going into some of the top line, but I wound up giving some info over to um, to a reporter who is publishing an article in the next few weeks on this topic, and I will share more about that with you if you're interested um, when it's published. But for, for now, I just kind of want to share some of the findings that I discovered after really deep diving on the topic of MSG and what it is, what it means, and what it says about us and what it says about the role of food policy and its impact on cultural narratives about and around food and health. I think this is obviously sort of a theme of today's episode, but at least with the erythritol topic as well, they're they're basically um, kind of like birds of a feather when it comes to nutrition science. So let's get into what what I found. Um, let's recap a little bit. So what is MSG? MSG is monosodium glutamate. It's a naturally occurring compound that's derived from amino acids and salt. And we commonly find it naturally occurring, just like erythritol, um, naturally occurring in foods like cheese, asparagus, tomatoes, meat, mushrooms. And we consume glutamate throughout the day from a variety of protein food sources. So glutamate is a non-essential amino acid. If it's non-essential, that really means that we make glutamate in our bodies in addition to consuming it in foods. 
Again, very similar to what we just talked about with sugar alcohols. So when we're talking about MSG, typically like in everyday conversation, we're usually talking about the additive version, which is what's used to create that umami flavor that's used for flavor enhancing purposes in the commercial food supply and to add flavor specifically in Asian cuisine. So since it's both an ingredient in its own right and a compound that can be found in other foods and a compound that our body makes, we'll also find it in things like Hydrolyzed vegetable protein, autolyzed yeast, hydrolyzed yeast, yeast extract, lots of yeasts. We also find it in soy extract and protein isolates. And on its own, it's also made from a fermentation process using carb-containing foods like beets, sugarcane, molasses. Those are the specific sources cited by the FDA, though it was initially patented in 1908 by a Japanese professor who discovered the ability to extract glutamate from a seaweed-based broth for commercial production. Today, it's used across the global food supply and is safe for use as a food additive by the European Union. So is MSG, quote unquote, bad for you? I mean, if you are a regular listener of this podcast, you probably know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) From a health perspective, the overall nutrient density of a food is completely independent from MSG's role as a flavor enhancer. In my clinical opinion, if you're consuming it naturally from eating a pattern of, of foods that are packed with veggies, soups, broths, from seafood, from lean meat, from those lean protein sources, you're likely consuming it in the context of a meal that's more nutrient-dense overall. While conversely, consuming it from more processed food sources that may also provide higher amounts of saturated fat, sodium, and added sugar may be less nutrient-dense. So ultimately, you can see that the nutrient composition of foods that you're eating most often are what make the most significant impact on your long-term health and well-being over time. Since MSG is a flavor-enhancing additive, it's used to create that umami flavor that we love. Lots of us love it, right? And that we typically associate with salty-tasting foods. Something interesting has come up and certainly come up in, you know, when I was in media, this this was kind of becoming a bigger thing when I was at Good Housekeeping. So that was, I want to say 2018. Um, There's been some recent data that suggest that MSG may actually be of interest from a public health standpoint as a food additive that can be used to reduce the overall sodium content in many prepared and packaged foods. So only 11% of the sodium in the U.S. is from salt that we add to food compared to what we consume from these sources. The the big takeaway about MSG from a consumer standpoint is that anyone everywhere should be continuing to include wholesome sources of of MSG from food, right? That occur naturally in food since they're all vegetables, lean protein sources. And in the case of cheese, a wonderful, a wonderful thing, just a beautiful thing, flavor enhancing ingredient that will give you some protein. Beautiful. According to the CDC, 10% of Americans, just 10, sad, measly 10, are eating the recommended servings of veggies per day. So the more ways that we can continue to use veggies to add volume, nutrient density, and most importantly, flavor to our everyday meals and snacks, the more nutritious and satisfying our meals become. And the simpler it is to stick with a pattern of eating more wholesome, nourishing, and tasty foods. I also personally use MSG as I would other spices. Like I will use it when I'm cooking 
to flavor soups, stir fries, sauteed veggies, and honestly, in sheet pan recipes, which are two words that I would like to never see put together by the New York Times cooking app ever again. You guys are doubling down on too many sheet pan recipes. I'm sure people love them, but can we just use a different appliance just one time? Okay, that was a tangent, but I'm sure I have people nodding their heads along with me right now. So here's the thing. Is it a good idea? Is this a good idea? A good idea or a bad idea to replace some of the sodium in packaged foods with MSG for um, because it is a nutrient of public health concern, right? So I think it's important that we have a, a little bit of a moment here collectively, both from an industry standpoint and as a practitioner. I think we have to say that with any food additive, including the ones that we perceive as beneficial for health, right, including the ones that we find naturally occurring in foods, that there's just no historical magic bullet. I'd love to know what it is. And I mean that sincerely. I would love to be corrected on this because I may, I might be wrong and it might be that I, something has just like deleted itself from my brain or I can't find it online or I just don't know, or I'm not looking in the right sources. And that's totally possible, right? But anything that we use for flavor in packaged and processed food products that's being used to replace an ingredient comes at the cost of compromise. There will always be trade-offs to including one ingredient at the expense of another or individuals for whom this might be hugely life-saving, game-changing for them, right? Versus others who might experience negative side effects. We don't really know. Here's what we do know. I want to be clear about this one. There is literally no good research to say that there's any reason not to consider the benefits of using MSG to to reduce sodium in packaged food products. So I'm making this statement and I'm sharing this with you with extreme caution and with the understanding that you as listeners of this podcast are smart enough to know where I'm coming from on this. I'm mostly just playing devil's advocate. What makes MSG so particularly unique is that the actual amount of MSG that would be added to food products in an effort to reduce dietary sodium in the global food supply. And by the way, this is a very existential question because like most people think that MSG is trying to kill you, right? Like, so, so we've got it. We've got a long way in consumer perception to go before this would even be considered, but let's just play with the idea here, especially when we compare it to how we currently are, you know, using other naturally occurring ingredients like erythritol that are added to food products to enhance either flavor, preservation, nutrient profile, or flavor inconvenience foods. Um, I use the sugar alcohol example as such a great one because it's sort of like the perfect comparison, right? It's like to sweeten foods without added sugar. And yet, still, there are many examples throughout our my own lifetime where providing larger amounts of naturally occurring substance in a variety of food sources may have side effects for specific populations. And that could be physical side effects, health side effects that are unknown to us. It could also just be a general shift in the overall movement of food, right? Like I, like this is exactly what I was getting at with the erythritol topic, which is that yes, erythritol is, there is no reason to think that erythritol is unsafe, but, but the, the, overwhelm of just taking a moment to recognize when walking into a supermarket in New York City, like of taking a moment to recognize just how many food products it's overwhelmingly in was sort of like a 
shock and awe moment for me that I don't hear enough of us talking about, right? Like, it's like, whoa, we really took this convenience thing and just went with it, didn't we? Like, do we really need another food product for the risk? Do we need another keto cookie? You know what I mean? Like, so there's that. And I wonder what that might be if we were to do this with MSG, if we were to take that approach with MSG. So really something curious to think about, to mull over, just throwing it out there. Again, there is no reason there is no reason to think that MSG is unsafe. And we're going to get to this in just a sec. But also, there's no such thing as an unequivocal, universal free lunch when it comes to taking naturally occurring compounds, using them ubiquitously in convenience and packaged foods to reduce sugar, saturated fat, or sodium, and presuming that this will fundamentally change public health outcomes without access to wholesome foods and without providing real, substantive, and personalized, yes, back to that, full circle, nutrition education about creating an eating pattern that supports your personal health and your needs and your lifestyle goals, there's no way to say from research alone that any compound found in foods can be replicated and produce the same long-term benefits as increasing intake of veggies and fruit, whole grains, lean protein sources, some unsweetened lower-fat dairy products, and unsweetened beverages. The other question that came up in this that I just think is an interesting one to, to use as an example, the topic of bias, of racial bias and the bias against use of MSG, are those two things related? Is there a correlation there? And I, my, my take, honestly, on this is maybe. But ultimately, the story is much more complex than that. Biochemistry of glutamate, the time and the context in which a naturally occurring flavor additive was brought to market for commercial use in our food supply and continued propagation of myths about food additives through food po product marketing, like, quote, no MSG on food labels is what's continuing to stoke consumer beliefs that are playing a larger role in the anti-MSG camp, right? And I'm rarely in favor of more, of doing more, of the federal government doing more, mostly on do less, right? I think that similar to sugar alcohols, this shows us how policy can affect food and diet culture over time, especially when it comes to a behemoth like the Food and Drug Admin Administration, and can often be mistaken from something other than what it was intended to be, right? Like in this case, MSG, this is, and sugar alcohol, alcohols too, similar versions of this marketing message come at us from everywhere. We see things like no artificial flavors, no artificial colors, no artificial preservatives. The problem with product marketing messages like that is their continued fueling, the continued stoking of the fire that Methods used in food production are uniquely responsible for negative health outcomes rather than looking at the nutrient composition of the foods we consume most often. Um, bottom line here is that this really reflects how food science and food marketing can be so easily conflated despite the fact that the nutritional composition of food is remains untouched. I'm going to wrap it up for today because I feel like I have been talking your ear off for forever and it's time for me to get this podcast live because I've been sitting on it today. Um, all right. So as always, thank you for listening. I so appreciate your time and I can't wait to see you again or 
hear you again or just talk to you again next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for listening to The Business of Wellness. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Remember that advice provided on this podcast is based on my application of research and practice as a registered dietitian and should not replace medical advice provided by your physician. If you like what you're listening to, please follow the show, leave a five-star rating, and share something you love from today's episode by leaving a review. This podcast only grows with your support. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it far and wide. It may be the one thing someone needs to hear to start building that roadmap today to secure a healthier, happier future. That's it for now. So until next time, cheers.